one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome here to Strength to Strength again this morning. Looking forward to our, our time together, and it's good to have Merle Burkholder with us. Merle comes to us, coming to us this morning from up in Ontario. Uh, he just told us that four hours north of Sioux, I'm sorry, four hours north of, uh, what country? No, I'm sorry, what country? What city was that in Minnesota? International Falls. International Falls, four hours north. And wow, I can only imagine polar bears and um, some people that live <laughs> a lot of population in that part of the world. But um, I know that Merle is there to be a light for Jesus in that place. And has worked there in that part of the world for a long time. So Merle, maybe you can fill us in on some of your work there in that part of the world. So it's good to have you here. It's good to have all of you here this morning. And Merle's topic this morning is on storytelling. And as you know, um, if you listen to his teaching or if you went over to his YouTube channel that he started here um, about a year ago, uh, he was blocked up at home and and wanted to get out and have coffee and meet with people and engage them with the gospel and with the stories. And he couldn't, couldn't do that. And so he, his wife said, well, why don't you start telling stories on YouTube? And that's what he did. And so he's got, um, I don't know, over 180 stories, I believe, with the first one starting back in March 30 of 2020. So that's really a beautiful example of someone taking advantage of the COVID world. And uh, so thank, thank you, Merle, for being an inspiration uh, in that area. It's been exciting to see different people, um, different people just adapt and, and use these uh, these times uh, for, for, for God and for his kingdom. So before we get started here, let's just bow our heads and, and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Father, we, you're such a merciful God. And, and again, this morning, uh, we sense, we feel your mercies. And Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, your son's name, that precious name, the name that is above all names, the name that we want to see lifted high, the name that we want everyone on this planet to know, the name of Jesus, and how this, this, this God-man came to earth and lived among us and, and taught us and showed us what it looks like to be the new humanity, to be like you. And was willing to go to the cross and, and die that horrible death. And in the process of rescuing humanity back to himself. And you rose again on the third day, um, inaugurating, uh, breaking the bands of, of death and inaugurating your kingdom. Um, the kingdom of God on earth. And, and through that, we can become into your kingdom. We can become your sons uh, and daughters. And it's, it's through... It's through Jesus. It's it's to the, the Father of Jesus that we pray to this morning, and our hearts are are overwhelmed with that beautiful reality. And so, Father, let's ask Lord that you would bless this uh, time this morning. You bless with Mel as he um, as he uh, leads out here and shares this this talk here on on storytelling and the power of that and the importance of that. Uh, give him words just to speak and a clear mind, Father. And bless each one of us as we listen, Father. Pray that you would uh, build us out to be more effective people uh, in advancing your kingdom on earth here. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, God bless you, Merle. Uh, all yours. All right, thank you, Bryant. Um, it's uh, good to be with you here this morning. Uh, you know, a story is like a seed. It carries a power that um, is mysterious, it's potent, and it's continuing. And when it falls into the human mind, it takes a life of its own. And there's just things that uh, I'm sure you all remember stories that just stay with you and you think about them and, and something happens and that story comes back to your mind. Um, and stories carry emotion that connects with us uh, differently than just an intellectual talk. Like I'm sure, you know, you've all uh, either been on the giving or the receiving end of a lecture and you knew where it was going and, and you didn't really want to hear it. And um, it just kind of, uh, you kind of, you kind of uh, uh, just phase out. You just, but when it's a story, you're engaged in the story and the point can come at the end of the story and just, just hit you. Um, I remember last uh, two weeks ago, I think Brother John was telling the story about the missionary couple that came back from, from Africa and how there was a big reception party there for uh, Teddy Roosevelt and, and, and there was no one there to meet them. And that's a powerful story. He didn't have to even tell us what the point of the story was. It was just, it was kind of, you know, the, the wife said to the husband, we're not home yet. And it was just, it's a, it's a powerful image that gets into our minds and we just picture, we can feel what that couple felt standing on that ship and it just it just sticks sticks with us uh, because we get this mental image that goes beyond what we're saying uh the point we're trying to make when i was uh when i was a little boy i was born in pennsylvania and uh, we lived on a small farm uh, we never my dad never farmed full time but um we he thought boys need work and so we had some steers that we'd raise over winter and few chickens and sheep. And, um, and when my dad would come home from work, we would, uh, we would feed the steers. And then we would go into the house and have dinner. And then after dinner, someone had to go out to the barn and turn out the lights because we would leave, let the lights on in the barn so that the steers could see to eat. And for a period of time, it was my job to go out to the barn and turn out the lights. And I was terrified of the dark. <laughs> I was terrified uh, to go out to the barn and turn out the lights because I knew there were monsters in the barn. I wasn't sure what they looked like. I had never seen them because monsters don't come out in the light. And, and so, but I knew that they were lurking around the corners in the shadows. And I knew as long as the lights were on, I wouldn't see them. But I just knew when I turned out the lights, they were going to get me. And so I'd go out there and I'd get in the barn and I'd look all around. I'd be looking for the monsters. And of course, I couldn't see them. And then I would get to the door and I would prop the door open with one foot, have my hand on the light switch and be looking all around. And then I would hit the light switch and I'd take off for the house, just running as fast as I could go. And I'd hit the porch and be like, oh, I survived another day. I, I made it and, and no monsters got me. And and it was a nightly terror that I went through. However, there was a big difference. If my dad went out to the barn with me, I, I had no anxiety about monsters at all. I, I could walk into the barn and I wasn't looking for monsters and we could turn out the lights and, 
I could walk calmly back to the house. I didn't have to hurry. And, you know, when we got to the barn, I could, I, I could say to the monsters, Hey, look who I have with me. <laughs> what are you guys going to do? You know, I got this, this is, uh, this guy's pretty big and, and uh, I'm not scared of you at all. You know, I think it's one of the reasons why uh, Jesus left us with the promise. I will be with you to the end of the age because we live in a kind of a terrifying world. There's a lot of things that are more um, legitimately reason to be frightened in our world than the monsters were in the barn for me, but we can walk through the world with the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. And we can say to all that wickedness and those monsters, look who I have with me. <laughs> and we don't have to be terrified. And but you see, in that story, there's an emotion. There's You get that picture of me as a 10-year-old boy, terrified of the monsters. And, and it, it illustrates a point that um, is important. A good story has, has conflict that ultimately resolves. A story can be messy. It can be full of confusion. But there's a meaning to it. There's a, there's a completeness to it. It comes back to... A point. A story is primarily centered around people and places, not so much around ideas and concepts. There are ideas and concepts in there, but what makes a good story is is something that you can visualize, something that you can identify with, something you can say, "I I, I would know how that feels. I I can I can connect with that." And then the ideas and the concepts kind of sneak in the back, and they they're there but they they're not the main they're not the main point but it can be powerful in implanting an idea a concept or a truth that comes through the the story a good story has context it has conflict and it has closure the context is the who the where the what where you kind of have the setting you have something you can visualize something that you can you can uh, have an idea of what's going on. And then there's the conflict, the tension, the unknown, what's going to happen. Uh, how is this story going to end? How is it going to, to turn out? And then you have the closure, the culmination of the story, the, where, where the point can be made. And in scripture, we have lots of stories. Uh, you think about the story of um, when after King David had sinned and he's kind of going on with his life and and everything's you know as far as he's concerned everything's great and no problem and and um and then the prophet nathan comes to him and the prophet nathan gives him this story that king david connected with because king david had his background as a shepherd and and nathan comes with this story about the man who had this little lamb that was his pet lamb and he had it in his house and he just nurtured it and cared for it and and then there's this other man that has lots of sheep and 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 the, the man with lots of sheep gets a guest and and rather than taking one of his own lambs to make dinner for his guest he goes and takes the lamb of this man who only, who only had one and he kills that and feeds it to his guest and, and david was infuriated and he talks about what's going to happen to that that man and, and then nathan gets his finger out there and says you are the man and talk to him about what he did. And, and the, the, I just have a feeling that, that if Nathan had come to, to David and kind of given him a lecture about what he had done wrong, David was, oh, well, you know, I'm king. And, and you know, it's, uh, that's just the way things are. But the story 
connected with him and he felt guilt. He felt he felt the, the awfulness of what he had done in a new way because he connected with the story. And we need people in our lives who will do that, people who will tell us what we've done that we ought not to have done. When I was a teenager, uh, I worked in my dad's business. Uh, it was a concrete business. And one summer, my job was, when I was out of school, my job was to fill the, the bins with sand and stone and, uh, and for the concrete. And uh, I had a front end loader that I was driving and it, uh, there was something wrong with the power steering. It wasn't working. And I had talked to the um, mechanic, the, the, the shop's foreman about getting it fixed and nothing was happening. He wasn't getting it done. And, and I was, uh, I was 14 years old and there was a, there was a cement salesman that came to that business. His name was Sam. And uh, Sam, he was 50 and I was 14. And for some reason he took an interest in me. I, I don't know why, but he, he took an interest in me. And when he would come to sell my dad's cement, he would talk to my dad and then he would come out in the plant and he'd find me and he would uh, take me to the break room and buy me a Mountain Dew. And he would uh, talk to me and, and, uh, and I just, I mean, I, it really meant something to me. Here's this older man that's paying attention to me that notices, knows that, he, that I'm here. And, and um, uh, so one day I was driving my front end loader and um, it had a knob on the steering wheel and I was turning the steering and the steering kicked back and the steering wheel just kind of spun. And that knob on the steering wheel caught me on the elbow, hit me on my crazy bone. And you know, that feels and it just, my whole arm's tingling and, and in a, just a rage. I, I went into the, jumped off the front end loader. I went into the shop. I found a shop foreman and, you know, I was probably the typical boss's son. I thought I had a lot more authority than what I really did. I just, you know, after all, I had dinner every day with the boss. So, you know, you better listen to me. And, and, um, as I went into the shop foreman and I proceeded to tell him what I thought of him, his ability to schedule things in the shop. And, and I, I just, I just told him how it was and how I saw it. And, and I was angry, and, and, and um, when I turned around to walk out of the shop, there was Sam standing in the doorway. And when I got to the doorway, Sam took me by the arm. He walked me around the side of the building. He backed me up against the wall, and then he just kind of leaned over me and put his hands on the wall. I was, my eyes were about at his tie level, and, and I don't know what, what it looked like. And Sam proceeded to tell me that what I had done was wrong. And if I was ever going to be the kind of person that he thought I was going to be, I was going to have to learn a lot about how to deal with people. And he told me, what, what you're going to do now is you're going to go back in the shop. You're going to apologize to that shop foreman. You're going to tell him that you are willing to drive that front end loader as long as you need to. And, and if he ever gets it into the shop and fixes it, you'll say thank you. And he said, I'm going to go with you. So we turned around. We went into the shop. And I went to the shop foreman. I told him, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said what I did. And I was wrong. And I will drive that front end loader as long as I need to with the steering the way it is. And if he ever gets it in the shop and fixes it, I'll, I'll say thank you. And then Sam took me to the break room. We had Mountain Dew and everything was great. But I needed him to tell me, you, this was what you did was wrong. And here's how you fix it. And then he went with me while I fixed it. And if you ever find somebody like Nathan or you ever find somebody like Sam, don't reject them. We need those people in our lives who tell us you were wrong. And here's especially helpful if they tell us how to 
to fix it. But you see emotion combined with information becomes memorable and it becomes actionable. It becomes things that, that we can do. Uh, Jesus talked about putting things into action at the end of the Sermon on the Mountain. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, he says, he tells, tells a story about these two men, uh, the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And, and we all probably learned that those story, that story when we were very young. And, and, and then Jesus makes his point, his, see, in, a, in a sermon, probably the two most significant pieces are your introduction and your, your, your closure, your, your conclusion. And the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount is this man who, who did build his house on the rock. And, and Jesus says, you know, if, if, you, if you hear what I'm teaching, but you don't do it, it, if you don't act on it, it really doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't mean anything. And he talks about the importance of a foundation and importance of, of building on the right uh, on the right stuff so that we have stability and a foundation is so important in life um when uh, i was in 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 dryden many years ago um, at northern youth programs we had a number of single ladies and we decided we were going to build a, a residence for our single ladies and so we thought this is going to be a fairly simple structure we don't have to really put a basement under it and so we put it on posts and I, our theory was that we would dig holes and we would go down 10, 12 feet below the frost level and we'd pour a concrete pad down there and then we'd put a post on that concrete pad and we'd put a sleeve on the post so that the frost would grab the sleeve and the sleeve would slide up and down on the post. And, and we, our, that was our strategy. I don't know what we did wrong, but that house, did not, it was not, uh, it, it would shift. And as the ground was freezing in the fall, it would, it would shift and we'd have the maintenance man out there uh, every week kind of adjusting the doors so the ladies could get their doors open and closed. And, and then the spring when the frost would go out of the ground, it would be in reverse and we'd be, so half of the year we were, we were out there uh, trying to make the doors work. And finally we got tired of it and we said, okay, let, we just need to put a basement under this house. And, and uh, so, I went to one of the neighbor men who was an excavator and I asked him if he would dig out under that house and so we could put a basement under it. And he said, well, I will if uh, you let me tell you how to support it while I do that because it is a house and if it falls on you, you're dead. And I'm not opposed to dying, but I don't want to do it anytime soon. So uh, if you support it the way I tell you, then uh, I'll do it. So he told us how to do it and we did it. We jacked the thing up, put some steel beams under it and propped it up. And, and he came over with his, uh, with his tractor and was digging out and under the house. And, and um, as he was doing that, I went out to, um, to talk to him and see how things were going. And he backed out from under the house and he turned his cat off and called me over and I came over and he said, Merle, did it, ever, did it ever occur to you people that it's a lot easier to build a house from the bottom up? If you put the basement in first, it's just a lot easier. And I was like, well, I guess it would be, but then how do you get the roof up there? Like that would be kind of hard, wouldn't it? And so, um, but you know, in life, it's true. It, it, it's easiest to build the foundation first. And when you're building a house, 
if you get the foundation in first, that just works best. You can go back later and jack up a house and redo the foundation. You can put a basement under a building that doesn't have one, but it's a lot of work. And in life, building your foundation first is really important. And I know that when we're young, we just want to get out there and do it. And, but all the energy that we put into laying a foundation and training and proper preparation is not wasted. It actually pays off throughout life. When you're 50 years old, you can go back and build a different foundation in your life. But it's much more difficult than if you do it when you're 20. It's just, it just is. And so I just encourage anyone, whatever age we're at, it's going to be easier to build a foundation, the proper foundation in our life now than it will be five or 10 years from now. And a good foundation is important. You see stories, the thing about stories is they don't feel persuasive. They don't feel like you're, you're being told what you need to do. Uh, even if it's been created with that goal, even if the goal of the story is to motivate you to do something, it's easy to lose sight of the agenda and kind of sink into the experience of the story. And, and that's what makes a story an especially effective persuasive tool because the person that's listening is opening themselves up to the experience of the story. And then the point comes in and it's like, yes, right there it is. And, and it's unavoidable. The point is unavoidable. If you're listening to a lecture, you can be disagreeing with all kinds of things and you can be get, getting sidetracked. Well, I don't agree with that. And I don't agree with that. And yeah, but what about this? But a story draws you in and then uh, the point uh, can be made. And stories have long been used as instruments of persuasion. Jesus did it with his parables. Um, he used parables and, uh, and many times to, uh, to make his point. And Jesus had his teaching. He had the Sermon on the Mount. He had teaching he did. But he had stories that he used to illustrate points. You think about the story of the prodigal son. And how Jesus illustrated the forgiveness of the father through the story of the prodigal son. And he set up this whole scenario where you obviously have this son who is, has just lost his way and, and doesn't deserve anything and comes back and the father just goes almost overboard and, and welcoming him back. And, and Jesus illustrates the point of uh, the forgiveness of the father. And he makes a, a, a strong uh, case for forgiveness and, and shows how it's, how it's done. And he gives just the, the miracle of forgiveness and what a miracle forgiveness is and, and how lost we would be without a forgiving father and, and and what if the father was judgmental and what if the father was was unforgiving and and what if the father just demanded whatever recompense for what the son had done and it, it would just be a totally different story but but he he shows the miracle of forgiveness and you know forgiveness really is a miracle it, it, it's amazing it you think about where we would be without forgiveness the whole uh it's it's so foundational to our faith because without forgiveness we can't even 
relate to God because of our own sinfulness and forgiveness is the basis of our relationship with, with God. But God has given us an illustration of forgiveness in our own bodies. You think about how our bodies heal when we have injuries and wounds and what if your body never healed? What if your body, every bruise you ever got, you still had. Every cut that you had would still be, still be bleeding. Like by my age, I'd be walking inside of a bandage, right? Like I, I'd be covered with, with, with bruises. Uh, but our bodies do heal, and things have happened to me that I don't even remember. I don't, I, I don't even know. I don't even remember they happened because they've healed and they're, they're gone. They're, they're finished. There are some things that happened to me that, that I, I will never forget. And they were, they were serious. They were big things. But, uh, and I'll always remember that they happened. When I was nine years old, our family was away for a Sunday dinner and my uncle and his family were there as well. And, and there was a, a little girl there that I was pushing on a swing out in the lawn, a lawn swing. And it was kind of on a hill and I had a folding chair out there that I would, I would push the little girl in the swing and then I'd sit on my folding chair. And when she slowed down enough, I'd get up and I'd push her again. And, and one time when I went to sit down on my folding chair, I sat down too quickly. And because it was on a hill, a chair fell over backwards and I grabbed at the legs of the chair, but I fell over backwards. And it was the, in the old days where folding chairs had kind of scissors style legs and my thumb got in between the legs and I fell on top of it and it cut off the end of my thumb right at the, the knuckle um, um, of, of my thumb. And uh, well, I went into the house and there, and, and of course my, everybody was distressed and my uncle said later he wanted to make me feel good, but he told my dad, oh, take, a, take the, the end of the thumb along to the hospital. They'll put it back on. And, uh, so we wrapped it up and, and uh, took me and my thumb in a package to the effort of hospital to the emergency room. And we got there and the doctor looked at it and he told my dad, this was probably, well, probably 1962. And, and uh, the doctor told my dad, well, uh, they're starting to reattach things. And they say it works especially well with children. He said, I've never done it, but I read an article about it. And uh, if you want me to try it, uh, I'll try it. And if it doesn't work, we can take it off later. And so my dad said, sure. So they gave me local anesthesia. And there I sat there. I watched him sew my thumb back on. And he put a cast on it, left the end of the cast open so that we could see if it was uh, getting circulation or not. And I don't remember how often I'd go back to the doctor, but uh, I keep going back to the doctor. And well, it didn't have circulation. It got black and, and it got dark and I'd go to the doctor and he'd dag it with a pin and I couldn't feel anything. It didn't bleed. And uh, I, after some time, I remember I went to the doctor and the doctor did that and, and still no circulation. I couldn't feel anything. And, and the doctor said, well, if it doesn't have circulation by the next time you come back, we're going to have to take it off because it's not working and you get gangrene and that, that would be bad. So um, the night before, I was supposed to go back to the doctor. My thumb was still dark. It still didn't have any circulation. And my mom said, you know, Merle, you need your thumb. We need to pray that God will heal your thumb. And my mom prayed for my thumb. 
And the next morning when I woke up, my thumb was as pink as a baby's thumb. And it was just, it hurt inside my cast every time I moved it. We went to the doctor and he said, okay, it's going to be fine. And um, got the cast off. At first, my thumb was stiff and um, I couldn't bend that knuckle, but probably now they put me in physical therapy, but then they just left the little boy go ahead and, and do stuff. And my thumb got working and I can bend it. And, and it looks a little funny. It's a little shorter than the other one and it kind of is crooked, but um, and now in the winter, uh, if it's 20 below zero, I need to rub it so it doesn't freeze, but hey, it's there. And, um, uh, but I'll never forget what happened to it. There's a scar that goes all the way around it. And uh, I'll always remember that that happened, but it doesn't hurt anymore. It doesn't, I don't have the same pain that I had the day it got cut off. There are things that happen to us in life that we will never forget, but because of forgiveness, they don't have the same pain. They don't have the same, there are consequences. There are things that we live with as a result of mistakes that we've made in the past, but there's still forgiveness. And the truth of scripture that says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness is really true. And, and yes, we remember those things, but not with the same degree of pain and and remorse that we did at the time that they happened. The power of forgiveness is, uh, is amazing. Another story that Jesus told is the story of the Good Samaritan when a person wanted to know what they need to have eternal life. And he said, well, you know, keep the commands. Well, I've done all these. And, and, um, and, and, and then, or maybe it was they, they asked him what the greatest commandments are. And he said, well, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And the man wanting to justify himself says, well, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus tells him a story uh, about a man who is on his way from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho and, and he falls among thieves and, and gets robbed and almost killed. And, and the priest comes by and passes by. The Levite comes by and passes by. And then a Samaritan comes and the Samaritan puts him on his donkey, takes him to the inn, pays for his care. And, and, um, and then Jesus says, so who is, who is the neighbor? And embarrassingly enough, the Jewish person who asked the question had to admit that it wasn't the Jewish leaders who went by and didn't do anything. It was the Samaritan who he would have considered a, an outcast who actually was a neighbor to the, the man who fell among thieves. And, and Jesus then says, well, you go and, you go and do the same. Um, and he makes a point about... Uh, how we live our lives matters. As we're going about our daily lives, there are things that we will come across that how we respond to them makes a difference. And it's not only about having the right theology, which is important, but it's also about acting on that theology. It's, it's about doing the things that God brings before us that need to be done. And maybe helping the person who's been robbed and is lying in the ditch by the road is more important than getting to the temple on time. Maybe, it, maybe there are things that God brings us into our path that are important for us to do. And, and what, are, what is my life really about? What, what am I, how am, I, how am I, I making life different for those that uh, I come across. What's the goal of my life? What are, what are the objectives of my life?
What are the important things to me in life? Is it the people that I come across, my path crosses? Or, or what is the important thing? What are the important things in life? My family and I spent a year in the country of Haiti, uh, in rural Haiti doing um, leadership development with SLM Ministries. And uh, after we came back uh, to Canada, uh, I had a friend uh, who, he was an agnostic. Um, he said that um, we don't know if God exists or not. He might, he might not. Um, the problem is we don't find out until we die and then it's too late. And so he would get involved enough in the church so that his theory was that he'll get involved enough in the church that if God does exist, he thinks he'll be all right. But if God doesn't exist, he won't have wasted a lot of time and money. So that was sort of his his approach. And he and I had a lot of discussions about it. And, and I would tell him, yeah, but, you know, you do the whole um, uh, thing of but if you take a wager, if, if, you're, if God exists, uh, you know, what have you lost? And so anyway, it was just he and I had a lot of, but he would always say, but I can't say that I, I believe in something that I actually don't believe in. And uh, so we had had a lot of discussions and he was a businessman. He was relatively wealthy. And um, uh, so we came back from Haiti and we had been to their house for dinner. He had, they'd been to our house for dinner sometimes. And, and uh, so after we got back from Haiti, he said, well, I want to hear about your experiences in Haiti. So you come out to our cottage and, and talk to us about Haiti. So I was all right, I'll do that. And, and so uh, he said, I'll meet you out by the Trans-Canada Highway because it's kind of hard to find my cottage. And well, it was good he did because there were back a number of turns on gravel roads going back to his cottage by the lake. And, and um, so I was following him and my problem started when I was following him to his cottage because he was driving a Jaguar and I was driving a kind of a not too new escort station wagon. And um, I parked beside his Jaguar at his cottage and I kind of got out of my car and I looked at his Jaguar and I thought, I wonder what it feels to, like to drive a Jaguar. Like that must be, now that's a real car. That's, that really is, uh, that, that must be nice. And uh, I wonder what he thinks of my escort station wagon. And then we got to their cottage and well, we've been to their house, but this was their cottage and their cottage was bigger and nicer than my house. And wow, this, this is nice, yeah. And, and, um, and then uh, he said, well, dinner's not quite ready yet. So I'll take you and your children sailing while uh, we wait for dinner to be ready. Well, he had about a 40 foot sailboat. And so we went out on the lake and we're sailing. And, and I'm thinking, this is really nice. This is the way a person ought to live. Yeah, <laughs> the Jaguar, the cottage, the sailboat. I should have stayed in Pennsylvania and started, a, if I would have stayed in Pennsylvania and started a business, maybe I'd have a cabin in the mountains and a boat at the shore and, and a, a, a nice car. And I actually have something. Uh, and we got back to the, the dock and, and we were gonna have dinner down at, on the dock. We had steak and baked potatoes and, and we were just ready to start our dinner. He said, now we're gonna go up to the cottage after dinner and, and talk about Haiti. But uh, if the children wanna stay down here on the dock, we have a jacuzzi on the dock and the children could go in the jacuzzi while we go up to the cottage and, and talk about Haiti. And I thought, oh, now he has a jacuzzi too. and and I'll confess to you that that my steak and baked potato didn't taste very good because I spent that meal thinking about I have I've done the wrong 
I made the wrong choices in life. I got nothing. I have to go to somebody else's house to eat steak. And the problem is the way I'm living my life, I never will have anything. And uh, this, I mean, this guy's living the way a person ought to live. This is how life is done, right? And and um, so we went up, we finished dinner. We went up to the cottage. We were talking about Haiti. Partway through our conversation, this man turned to me, uh, turned to his wife and he said, you know, Pat, uh, we've made the wrong choices in life. We've never done anything for anybody. When we travel, we just go, we look at, we go look at things and then we come home, but we've never done anything for anybody. He said, look at the things that Merle and his family have done. We've never done anything like that. And you know, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, you know what? Like you were down there crying into your steak and baked potato, feeling sorry for yourself. But really, if anybody ought to feel sorry for themselves, it's not you, it's him. And you know, it's true. If I would get to the end of my life and all I would have to show for 70 years of life would be a Jaguar and a Jacuzzi and a sailboat, that's not enough. That is not a legitimate purpose for life. That would be a failure. And life is just filled with so much more and has so much more significance than acquiring things. The world is full of 40, 50 year old people who have accomplished all their financial goals and are disillusioned and have no purpose for life and are depressed and discouraged about life. We have in Christ, we have a purpose for living. We have something that is far more valuable than any jacuzzi or sailboat or jaguar. And I want to live my life in such a way that when I am done, the kingdom of God has been furthered and the name of Christ has been glorified. And if I can do that, I don't care about jacuzzis and jaguars and sailboats. That doesn't mean anything. So, Stories, they're powerful in communicating our point and, uh, and getting our own heart message into words and what we're feeling into something that communicates. So that's uh, what I have for you this morning. Brian, I'll turn it back to you. Thank you so much, Merle. Um, I was touched by your stories and stories from the Bible that you reiterated and then your own stories that you told. Thank you for helping us understand the power of a story. Um, I'm going to open it up here right shortly for questions for you, uh, Brother Merle. Um, but I have a question for you uh, first. So I'm currently uh, going through a book with circle of brothers um it's called the messenger the message the community by roland mueller um this is a brother who helped plant churches in the middle east contact context and as we know our people in the east um definitely use stories way more than we do in the west um, maybe you can kind of unpack why that is. So maybe I have a two-part question for you. Why, why do you feel that we've lost the, the power of storytelling? Uh, and then the second question, uh, the second part of this question is, is it ever okay to make up a story to, to drive a point home, to actually create it? 
um, this, this brother would, would actually say, that's okay. Make up a story um, for your point. And that kind of hits me just wrong. Uh, so I'm curious, what are your thoughts on, on making up a story? Um, so yeah, there's my two part question for you. All right, well, let me take the first part first. Um, I don't know that why I, maybe we've, maybe we've lost the art of storytelling um, in an oral tradition when you don't have a lot of things in writing then stories become the backbone of communicating truth. Um, in our culture, in our way of thinking, we tend to have these linear three-point things. It's, it's the logical point one, point two, point three, here's the conclusion. And, um, and while that's effective um, in other cultures, especially cultures that have an oral tradition there's more circular thinking. You, you have a main point, you have a story of it and it comes around and it makes the point. You have another story, it comes around, it makes the same point. And uh, so it's a different style. Uh, I think we could use stories more effectively, but, um, but yeah, they're in, in, especially in cultures where reading and writing is not as common, where you have more people who are illiterate the power than stories are are very effective in communication. I, on your second part of your question about fictional stories, I don't know. Like Jesus' parables, did they all actually happen, or were they stories that he created to to make the point? Like was prodigal son was there was that an actual event was there an actual father actually two sons or was that story something that he told the good samaritan did like i i'm not i don't we don't know if all those things actually happened uh, i think we have to be clear like if i'm telling a story and i'm saying that i did this and i didn't that's wrong um it has to be if if i'm uh exaggerating in a story if i'm adding things into the story that didn't actually happen I, I don't think that's i don't think that's right but i i think there is a place for a fictional story as long as as uh as we're not presenting it as i met this person and i know this happened and making it an actual making it seem like it was an actual event does that does that uh, help with your question Yes, it does. <clears throat> yeah. So thank you. Okay. Um, any questions from crowd here? Let's be quick with your questions. This is John. I, I would just like to say I really appreciated this, Merle. I tell people that uh, the deficiency in most people's communication is the lack of stories. And a person who's preparing a message, at least for me, that's the most difficult part. Uh, I can always get the three points in the poem, but I have difficulty and have to work hard to think of good illustrations. And I tell people you can break every rule of public speaking if you have good stories, uh, you'll, you'll get your point across. I remember listening to Ken McFarlane, who was rated by the uh, uh, Chambers of Commerce as the best public speaker in America. And uh, one thing that impressed me, and he, he spoke on subjects like education and business. He was not a, really a Christian. But the most powerful message I ever heard him give was just two, he had two points. 
and he had a, a rather extended but impressive story for each point. And that was his whole talk, just two points with the story illustrating each one of them. So I really appreciate this because I think uh, that's the lack in much communication. We just don't tell enough stories. So thank you, Merle. Yeah, that's true. And I, in, like, I, I would agree with you, John. I, I feel like in my, um, like preparing a message, I have to go back over my outline and say, okay, like, how am I going to illustrate this? Um, and, you know, we, it has to be something that actually connects with, doesn't distract from the outline, doesn't distract from the flow of the, the thoughts that, that you want to give. But uh, just an outline, I can have a lot of truth in it, but if you know how to illustrate it, it brings it, brings it to life. Yeah, I talk to friends sometimes about this and they say, well, this is, it's just not my style. I'm just not a storyteller. And I tell them, well, storytelling is intentional. I'm not sure. There might be some people who just simply have a style of storytelling. But many people who are effective speakers who tell stories, they did it intentionally. It maybe was not uh, uh, their style, but they knew it was important and they made sure that their talk had the stories. Yeah, and the other thing about it is um, stories bring it to a level that anyone can understand. And you know, one of the challenges we have is like sometimes our children just get totally bored in church, but stories, uh, stories communicate and even to, even to children. And I always feel like, well, two things. One is I feel like I get my best compliments on messages from children. And if a nine-year-old comes to me after church and says, I really like that message, I know that 70 year olds liked it too and uh, it and the other thing is if you put if if your communication if your stories communicate and you put it to where a nine-year-old understands it everybody understands it and the basic elements of the gospel are not complicated they're not they're not difficult they're pretty simple concepts and you put it out there with stories that illustrate it, everybody, everybody understands it. Well, the beautiful part about it is everybody understands it at their own level. The child is not getting out of the story probably what the adult is. He's not analyzing. Uh, he's just simply uh, relating to it as a child. That's the right. beautiful thing about a story. Everybody gets something out of it on their own level for their own need. Right question for you Merle uh, to start with thanks for your story about the jaguar and jacuzzi there's a whole lot of us young guys that need to hear that from you know not calling you old but you know from older men like you and John who need to hear that jaguars and jacuzzis and sailboats are not enough we need to hear that story keep telling that but to follow up on what John was just saying I I'm, I'm I'm the classic linear logical three-point outline that's definitely me how do I cultivate the art how do I learn to tell good stories in, in presentations and messages. Where, where do I find, how do I go about developing that? Well, I think like Don was saying, it's a lot of work, but I, what, what I do when I prepare an outline, then I go back over it and say, okay, how am I gonna illustrate this? What, and, and what, what can I do to illustrate it? And 
I think that um, the art of storytelling, we, we learn by hearing stories and uh, it's like, it's a skill and a skill can be learned. And I'll, I, with any skill, there's people that are naturally gifted at it and can do it better than others, but a skill can be learned. It's a, there was a day when none of us rode a bicycle. Uh, we all learned to ride a bicycle and it took practice and we wobbled and crashed and did a few things, but eventually we got it. And that's how it is with storytelling. It's a skill and, and yeah, we might start out a little shaky and say, well, this doesn't sound like, like John or it doesn't sound like the storyteller I want to be, but keep practicing and you'll get there. Um, and you, you can, you can uh, learn it as a, as a skill. Uh, Ryan, what you do is you listen to other people tell stories and you borrow lots of stories from other people. I have a wedding sermon coming up and I, I came to this, um, first of all, I knew I was going to hear a good rationale for stories, but he gave me a story uh, about uh, getting a foundation in there. And I'm going to talk about that in relation to marriage, but I have a different story. I can tell a story of a church building. They tried to put a basement under, cracked all the walls and uh, because they had to blast stone underneath this building. And so I have quite a story to tell, but uh, his, his message this morning gave me a story for my wedding sermon. So you're always looking for stories. You're saying we should keep hanging out with you and Merle. <laughs> Merle. Merle's a much better storyteller than I am. <laughs> I think one of the things about a good story is when it's personal. Um, so we can make up the story, and, and perhaps Jesus did with parables at the time, but when it's a personal story, this happened to me. Um, that connects. And when you have a personal story with a life that backs that up, uh, that's, that's, what makes, that's what makes it stick. And so when Merle tells the story about the Jaguar and the sailboat, um, I know Merle, and I remember the Ford Escort, and I know the life that Merle lives, and that all goes together. And when you put that whole package together, that's what makes it so powerful. Yeah, that's that's a really good observation, Tony. Thank you. Um, there's 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 two questions that came in here, Merle, um, via the chat, and, and the first one I'm not quite sure um, what this person's getting at, but I'll, I'll just repeat it as a, as you sent it, and maybe you'll <clears throat> you'll get it here. He said, uh, "I have a question. What was the story from Haiti that you told your friend?" whose cottage you visited? Um, we talked about our life experiences there. Um, and we had, um, we wanted to live as much as possible a rural Haitian lifestyle. So we didn't have anything that nobody in the church had. So we didn't have running water. We didn't have a gas stove. We didn't have a vehicle. We, um, cooked our food on charcoal. We washed our clothing in a bucket. Um, we didn't have a generator. And so we lived quite a different uh, lifestyle. And, and we um, connected with people in that community in some pretty powerful ways and saw the hand of God um, in, in 
at work in our lives, in our protection. There were times when I was terrified. There were times when it seemed like our lives were in danger. There were times that uh, we were thrilled with what God was doing. Uh, there was a lady that uh, she had had like five babies that had died at birth and uh, they were all full term, but they died at, at birth and uh, her and her partner weren't married and someone had put a, a curse on her and uh, and sh her and her husband got saved and they got married and they became members of the church and she got pregnant and she had a baby and we prayed for her and that child survived. Amazing. And it was just the power of God that for the first time in her life, that curse was broken and she was able to have a child. And it was those kind of stories of what God had done. Here's a man who doesn't know if God exists. He's an agnostic. And yet just the hand of God and the things that we saw God do in people's lives, um, those were the things that made him say, we missed it. Um, and, um, you know, I, that man, I, I, his son was a believer and his son said, you need to keep talking to my dad because he doesn't listen to me. And I told him someday, and he said, someday my dad is going to have a problem that his money can't fix. Mm -hmm. And then he's going to have to face life in a whole new way. And I told his son, when your dad is at that point, you let me know because I want one more chance to talk to him about the Lord. And one day I was visiting with his son and he said, you know, my dad is in the hospital. He's dying from cancer. And uh, I said, well, I want to go see him. And he said, well, I don't know if he's going to be awake or coherent or not. Some days he's really there and some days he's not. I went to the hospital to visit him and he was alert. He was awake and his wife was there with him. And we had a conversation and I told him, Roy, like, you're going to die. You know, you're going to die. And how do you feel? And, and he said, well, I'm not sure. Sometimes I'm scared. And I told him, well, Roy, you and I have talked about the Lord a lot of times. And you know what you need to do to prepare yourself for death and to meet the Lord. And his wife said, Merle, we're trying to keep everything really calm here. And I said, okay, that's fine. And I just asked him, Roy, can I pray for you? And he said, yes, please. And uh, I prayed for him. And I don't know what he died a few days later, but I had that last chance to talk to him about the Lord. And I was on, I left and was leaving a couple of days later to go to Guatemala. But uh, he died a few days later. And he wanted me to have the eulogy at his funeral. And <laughs> that's, uh, that's amazing. Uh, but anyway, that, I, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked here, but that's, that's the end of my story with, uh, with Roy. Interesting. Wow. Um, and then the next question is, is can, can some people tell too many stories, especially in a sermon? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if it if it shifts over to where it's just entertainment, uh, then 
yeah, it, it, there has to be a there has to be a a flow of thought and uh -huh. it, yeah, sure. If it just becomes entertainment, and it's just a string of stories that not at much point, then that, sure. it can be overdone. I but I like what I like what Don was saying. Here's a point. Here's here's an illustration. Here's here's a point. Here's an illustration, and you alternate and you you work your way you work your way through it. I think you 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 um, you showed us this morning uh, what what that looks like. So very well. Okay. Well, it is almost seven o'clock, so I think we'll we will um, we'll wrap this up here. Um, so yeah, thank you everyone for joining us here, and um, and thank you, uh, Brother Merrill, for for um, expanding our minds on the power of a story and and doing that by telling us stories this morning. You're welcome, uh, Merrill. Could you just close us here in prayer, please? Sure. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your story and that you included us in your story and um, we thank you for the bible that is your story of your interaction with us as humanity and god we're so grateful for forgiveness and for purpose for living and the way you give us meaning in our lives and lord i pray that you would be with us as we communicate with each other help us to know how to use stories in an appropriate way in a way that uh, communicates concepts and ideas, but also connects emotionally and uh, draws our listeners into what we are trying to communicate. Lord, I pray that you would be with each person that's on the call this morning. I pray that you would bless us as we go through our day. I pray that you would put your angels around us and watch over us, protect us from the evil one. I pray that you would use us in meaningful ways for your kingdom today. We're your servants and we want to please you and see you pleased. At the end of the day, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Merle. You've been a great inspiration. God bless you. Thank you, John. Amen. Well, God bless you there in your work there in Northern Canada. Um, okay, so next Saturday, Lord willing, we'll meet here again. And we have a brother coming to us from Boston. His name is Tim Kipfer. And his title is going to be Tolls for Developing Sexual Integrity. Um, specifically looking at uh, how we do that in a world of, in, in a um, internet world. Um, so if you can join us next Saturday morning here at 6 a.m. So God bless you all and have a great day. Grace and peace. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.